the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We finished today's Gospel, my brothers and sisters, with the, the second of the Markan prophecies of the Passion. But I want to talk about this healing of the one who's described here as a boy, although I'm not at all convinced he is a boy, because when the Father tells Jesus he's been like this since boyhood, it suggests he's older than that. Jesus drives out the demon. And then he refers to the necessity prayer and fasting. Now, all of these, of course, are Lenten themes. In the ancient church, all during Lent, exorcisms were done weekly, in some cases daily, over those who are about to be baptized. And we will do an exorcism this morning, immediately following the sermon on those are going to be baptized, at least those of who are here. This morning's story is a story about the struggle of faith. Jesus regards the crisis in this story to be directly related to faith. He says in a great sense of exasperation, O faithless generation, what God says to the people in the desert, isn't it? The 40 years wandering in the desert. O faithless generation, how long will I be with you? Actually, it's not going to be very much longer. How long shall I bear with you? Now, faith is the central component in the conversation between Jesus and the father of the boy. Before I go further with this, I don't often give you visual age. Now that painting you have, is in part a portrayal of faith. The painting is in the art gallery of the Vatican Museum. Napoleon's army stole it and took it back to France in 1795. It was finished in 1520. Um, it's the last of Raphael's paintings, the last one. In fact, it's likely he didn't even put the finishing touches on it. It's likely someone else did. He, uh, he died rather early at age 37. Um, 
some of you have had a chance to look at it. Was there anything in there about this morning's sermon in there? Well, today's gospel is a story about faith. The man says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and save us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. The text goes on, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And there is a first feature to observe about faith in this text. It's weakness. You know, in most people, faith is mixed with strong components of unbelief, difficulties, and occasionally doubts. It's probably most likely in contemporary society because a couple of centuries ago the history of philosophy took a suicidal turn and began to encourage the cultivation of doubt. One of the major features of so many schools of modern philosophy, the deliberate cultivation of doubt. I likened it in a touchstone conference a few years ago. I likened it modern philosophy to a snake who starts to eat his tail and it keeps eating its tail and it keeps eating its tail and before long it's crunching on its own brain that strikes me as a, a just and fair metaphor for a great deal of the epistemological suicide of much contemporary philosophy the deliberate cultivation of doubt. But even for those of us who don't cultivate doubt, for those who regard the cultivation of doubt as a species of putting a bullet in one's head, there's still days when faith is difficult. Trials, tribulations, afflict the mind. And one's not sure if he has any faith at all. Indeed, that has so often been my own experience and I can't believe I'm alone in this. There are days when even the most ardent and serious believer may wonder if he has any faith. In Matthew's version of this story, in fact, not Mark's, which we had this morning, the evangelist adds Jesus saying about faith as a grain of mustard seed. Very, very small. A little bit. And yet Jesus assures us this much faith is sufficient to move mountains. 
Those who have lived by faith know all about this. A mountain is a very large and generally immovable problem. In the course of our life in Christ, we will occasionally meet such mountains, and they will seem impossible. But they are no more immovable than Pharaoh's army was invincible. Another important difference is this. A mustard seed is alive and will grow and will thrive. Mountains tend ever to remain the same. Size, in short, is not of importance with respect to faith. You know, rather seldom does Jesus reprimand his disciples in the gospel story. It's very rare he does this. But when he does, it is most often in connection with their weak faith. How often he calls them oligopisti, you of little faith, oligopisti. The most striking place where the word appears, I believe, is again in the Gospel of Matthew where Peter tries to walk on water. And it began to sink. And Jesus says to him, O you of little faith. He fully expects us to walk on water. And if we don't, that is his reprimand. O you of little faith. A second feature about faith, and it follows directly from the first, is the inevitability of its being tried. This we can be sure of with respect to faith. It will be tested. This is a principle illustrated in the cases of Abraham and Job. Indeed, both of these men also exemplify a special way in which faith is tested. Abraham and Job have this also in common. They were tried through their children. Job, we recall, was disappointed with his children right from the beginning. They're described as a bunch of party goers. In fact, they have a party every day. It means, you look at that, it's, it's almost like a Jane Austen novel. You know, every, you're either having a ball or you're preparing for the next one. I, when I first read Jane Austen, that was my, my did anybody here have a job? That was my, that was my, my feeling when I read, oh, that word, I don't want to knock Jane Austen, who's, I think, one of the major, there, there's, there's a person who is a sound philosopher. She does not fall, she is a stoic. She does not fall prey. If you have a choice, always read Jane Austen for philosophy, not Nietzsche. <laughs> and we do have a choice. Um, but Job's children, Job's children partied all the time. And it was a source of constant worry to him. And you know what happens, that all of them die in a single day. And when God had in mind to test the faith of Abraham, how did he test it? Through his son, Isaac. 
You know, it is arguable that it is our children that we are most vulnerable. You know, our children belong to us, and yet they don't. I think we learned that rather early, didn't we? These were our children, and yet they belong to God. And I remember telling the Lord about that one time when they were very, very young, when I was quite distressed. They were hardly more than infants at the time, and I remember walking out under the stars. I'm telling the Lord, I know you gave them to me, but they're still yours. Tell me how to figure that out. Because it's very important to figure that out because I'm going to have them for a while. And I need to get that clear in my head. Abraham and Job were likewise subject to that experience. Children are linked with society and with history. It's no wonder that they represent the challenge of faith because faith is intrinsically tied to society and to history. It's significant, therefore, that the faith of the man in today's gospel is tested in connection with his child. You find this pattern all through Holy Scripture. We recall the Shunanite woman in 2 Kings 4. We think on the sick child of the nobleman who approaches Jesus in John 4. We consider the example of Jairus who brought to Jesus his anxiety about his daughter. Here's the way Mark describes it. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. We weigh the example of the Syrophoenician woman who came to Jesus, worried and grieving for her sick daughter. There are a thousand ways in which our faith may be tested for our children because it is through our children that we are most vulnerable. But these are extreme examples, and however it happens, we can depend on it. Our faith will be tested. And if we know we are being tested, we are far less likely to fail the test. Now third, this testing of faith takes place in the valley beneath the mountain of transfiguration. The painting that you've had a chance to look at is known as Raphael's Transfiguration. And yet, slightly over half of the area on that canvas is not the Mountain of Transfiguration at all. That's to the top. Slightly over half of that painting describes the valley beneath. What's going on in that valley beneath? 
was a little boy who was possessed of a demon. And everybody is all milling around and trying to figure out what to do about it, this chaos. In Matthew and in Mark, in their gospel sequence, today's gospel takes place just as Jesus has come down from that mountain where the three apostles witnessed the transfiguration. While he was being transfigured on the mountain, the other apostles were down in the valley, vainly attempting to exorcise the demon from that man's son. There's contrast between these two scenes. Now the painting has been variously interpreted. I'm not sure what Jane Austen thought of it. I don't recall, I've read all of Jane Austen, but I don't recall the painting being mentioned anywhere. But I do know what Nietzsche thought of it. Nietzsche interpreted this painting of Raphael in his book, The Birth of Tragedy. Nietzsche saw in this painting a depiction of the conflict between the Apollonian and the Dionysian principles, principles of rationality and irrationality. I believe this interpretation would have come as a bit of a surprise to Raphael. If he had lived a few more hundred years, he could have read Nietzsche and found out what his painting was about. But he died at age 37, on Good Friday, April the 6th, 1520. I don't think that painting is about the Apollonian and Dionysian principles in human experience. It's about faith. He's divided between these two scenes. In the upper half, the peace and solemnity of the transfiguration, and the scene of chaos and confusion at the bottom. The top is full of light, and darkness dominates the bottom. That, that bottom, in fact, is one of the best, one of the absolute best of Raphael's use of chiaroscuro. At the top, the apostles are shielding their eyes from the divine splendor. The apostles at the bottom are desperately trying to help the little boy, and they are clueless. I notice that one of them is even consulting a book. Got a book on his lap, gesticulating. Now, this last of Raphael's paintings, my brothers and sisters, says a great deal about the experience of faith, namely that it is a valley experience. All of us surely would prefer to be in the top half of that painting. Moses. Elijah, Peter, and James, and John. I am not sure who the two little figures to the left are, but I'm suspecting they are Raphael and his friend de la Robere. I'm suspecting that since he, he kept sneaking them into all types of places where history doesn't testify they were. 
<laughs> but I think most of us, all of us really, would rather be on the top, wouldn't we? Shielding our eyes from the divine glory, up with Jesus transfigured, the vision of light. And yet, we don't have that experience very often. Most of the time we're in the valley. It is in the bottom half of the painting that we find ourselves, the dark valley. What the Bible calls the valley of the shadow of death. And you see, there, there is where we make progress in faith. And the slightest effort given while we're in the valley, even though it seems so pitiful, a grain of mustard seed, the slightest effort we make while we're in the valley is what counts. We believe what really counts is when we're on the mountaintop, transfused with the light of Tabor, and we wonder why it doesn't happen more often. We don't often make progress on the mountaintop. I need to tell you this. We do not often make progress on the mountaintop. We make progress in the valley where even the slightest bit of faith transforms our lives. Here's the place where faith is put to the test and children are healed. 